0: Welcome everybody to week three of kingdom. This series of messages in which we've been exploring one of the most important and at times one of the most confusing aspects of our faith and that is the kingdom of God. Now for those of you who are new or if you've just been playing hooky the last couple of weeks, there are two things that are essential for every Christ follower to understand about the kingdom of God. One is that the kingdom of God is not just something that exists in heaven. It's not something that you know we're going to get to experience in the future when we die or when Jesus comes back. The kingdom of God is right here right now. It is all around us all of the time. Why do I say that? Because the kingdom of God exists anywhere and everywhere that God reigns. Anywhere and everywhere God's presence is experienced, God's power is demonstrated, and God's purposes are fulfilled. That is the kingdom of God. The second thing you need to understand about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which by the way means the same thing, is that it is not just some kind of nebulous, deep theological aspect of our faith. The kingdom of God is not just something for special people all the time or people who really study and can know about this thing called the kingdom of God. It is an essential part of our faith faith. It is a part of our journey with Jesus. I say that because not only does the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven appear over a hundred times throughout the Bible in the New and Old Testament. I say it because Jesus did. Jesus taught and taught about the kingdom of God a lot. In fact, you could almost say he he was almost obsessed with the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus said that if you're his follower, the kingdom of God should be the primary focus of our lives. Where did Jesus say that? In the Sermon on the Mount. Notice, top of your outline, Matthew 6, 33. Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. In other words, we should seek God's presence, God's power, and God's purposes throughout our lives. It should be the most important thing to us. The problem is it's hard to seek something if you're not exactly sure you know what it is. That's why the goal of this series has been not only to define the kingdom of God for us, but more importantly, to look for practical ways that we can be an active part of the kingdom of God right here in our little corner of the world, our little community, our world. And to help us do that, we've been looking at some of the parables that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Now remember Parables are made-up stories that Jesus often used to explain abstract, complicated concepts through everyday life experiences. And last week, we looked at Three very simple, very short parables that Jesus told about the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13. They were pretty easy to understand, you know, the mustard seed, the yeast, making the bread rise. Those were easy, simple little parables that taught us principles of the kingdom. Today, not so easy, not so short. We're going to look at one very long, complicated parable that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God and hopefully from that parable we can pull out three kingdom principles that we can apply to our lives this particular parable is often known as the parable of the vineyard workers and it's found in Matthew chapter twenty. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you could turn or click there. you can see the parable in the first sixteen verses. If you don't, it's okay. you can follow along with your program. But the basic storyline of the parable is this. There was a landowner who had a big vineyard, and one morning, early about six am, he goes into the marketplace in town to find some day laborers to come and work in his vineyard now this is a common practice not only 2,000 years ago but even today because a vineyard once it's planted and kind of established doesn't require a lot of work most of the year most vineyard owners can manage their vineyards with either just their family or a very small staff most of the year but harvest time is a very different story. When the grapes are coming in and it's time to be harvested, there is a lot of work that has to get done in a short period of time. So they hire temporary laborers to come in and harvest the grapes. And so that's what this guy does. He goes into town. There's a group of people waiting to be picked up and hired. He, he says, look, I need you to come work in my vineyard. And if you will, he negotiates a pay for the day. He agrees to pay them one denarius for their day's work, which was a good deal, a fair deal. A denarius was basically a day's worth of wages. So they're like, yeah, that's a good price, we'll go do it. So they go start working at 6 a.m. Now it's important to understand, in first century Jewish culture, the work day started at 6 a.m. And it didn't end until 6 p.m. It was a 12 hour workday. This was before labor unions and labor laws and eight hour days and 40 hour weeks. You basically worked six days a week, every day but Saturday, the Sabbath, from sun up, 6 a.m., to sundown, 6 p.m. So these guys get started picking grapes. About 9 o'clock in the morning, apparently they weren't getting it done fast enough, the guy goes back into the marketplace and he hires another group of people to start work, only he doesn't tell them what he's going to pay them. He just said, come work in my vineyard and I'll pay you a fair wage. They're like, sounds good, they go. He repeats that again at noon, brings in some more. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he brings in some more. And then Jesus said about 5 o'clock, he goes back into the marketplace, only obviously with only an hour left in the workday. He's not looking to hire anybody to work in the vineyard. But there are a couple of dudes standing around doing nothing. He's like, why have you guys been standing here all day? They're like, nobody hired us. He said, I'll hire you. Go work in my vineyard. They start work at 5 o'clock. Now, when quitting time hits, 6 o'clock, the owner of the vineyard tells his vineyard manager to pay all of the workers, but to pay them in reverse order. In other words, to pay the ones who started work last first, and the ones who started at 6 a.m. paid them last. And so he starts paying them, and the one-hour workers, the people that had just started at 5, guess what he pays them? A denarius, a day's work. Now the guys in the back of the line that have worked 12 hours see that, and they're like, oh, we're going to get even more. Those guys only worked an hour. They got a denarius. We're we're probably going to get 12 denarius, man. We're like two weeks pay for one day. They're all excited until they get paid, and they get one denarius. And they're like, what is up with that? That ain't right. That ain't fair. These guys only worked an hour. These only worked three hours, and you're paying them. That ain't right. They started grumbling, and the verb that Jesus uses means they continued to grumble, so much so that the owner of the vineyard came to him and said, What are you grumbling about? Are you saying I'm not being fair or just? What did you agree to work for? A denarius. How much did I pay you for a day's work? A denarius. And he says, What are you upset about? Are you jealous because I'm generous? Isn't it my money? Shouldn't I be able to do with it whatever I want? And then Jesus ends the parable with this very familiar phrase. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, this is a confusing parable. It's frustrating for us, right? Right? Because it cuts against the grain of our understanding of fairness, right? It's not right for guys to work 12 hours and get the same pay as guys who only worked an hour. That's not just right. If we're honest, we find ourselves agreeing with the very guys that Jesus sort of paints as the bad guys. So what is going on here? What is the deal with this parable? One of the things you have to remember when you're reading a parable is that Jesus is teaching a parable about one principle one thing Jesus was telling this parable to describe the kingdom of God not to explain business ethics Jesus didn't use this parable to teach morality in the workplace or leadership 101 or good labor practices. Jesus said this parable, it's about the kingdom. And more specifically, this parable is about our significance in life. How do we find significance for our lives? Because every one of us wrestles with that, right? Every day the alarm clock goes off and and we get up and we go through the day and we find ourselves asking, is, is my life really counting? Am I really doing anything? Am I making a di- Does my life even matter? Is there any significance in my life? And Jesus tells this parable so that we can understand that in the kingdom of God, finding your significance is very different than in the kingdom of this world. See, what Jesus wants us to know through this parable is that in the kingdom of God, your significance is not found in just doing more religious activities or getting out there doing more good work in the community. Your significance is found in the fact that you've been hired by the vineyard owner, that he sees value in you whenever you started working. Three things we learn about significance in the kingdom of God. Number one, my significance in the kingdom of God comes through God's grace, not my performance. In the kingdom of God, significance comes through God's grace towards me, not my performance for God. I mean, think about it. Isn't that the heart of this parable? Just how irrelevant performance is? Because it obviously makes no difference to the vineyard owner whether you've worked for 12 hours or only one hour. He values you because of your position with him. How he sees you. And see, those who had worked 12 hours, they were focused on their performance for him. Those who only worked one hour knew they were dependent on his grace towards them. And Jesus says, that's how it works in the kingdom of God. See, here's the thing. Every one of them needed a denarius to survive. The reason it was a day's wages is because that basically is what it took to feed your family, pay your tithe, and pay your taxes to Caesar. If you didn't make a denarius during that day, you were behind. And Jesus gives us what we need, not what we deserved or earned, in the same way that the vineyard owner gives everybody what they need regardless of their performance. That is what grace is. So does that mean that what we do doesn't matter? Is Jesus saying that I can say I love Jesus and then go live any way I want and do whatever I want with my life? No, absolutely not. What it means is your value, your significance as a person is based on God's posture towards you, not your performance for God. Let me put it another way our behaviors, our obedience, whatever you want to call it, those things are a response to God's grace, not a route to that grace. It's not about performance. It's about God's grace. In fact, I want you to look at this passage from Ephesians chapter 1, but I want you to think of this passage in terms of this parable. Think about it with the background of this parable. Paul writes, For he, the vineyard owner, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world. Why? Because he knew we'd be really good workers? No. He did it in accordance with his pleasure and will. Because it's his vineyard and he'll do what he wants. Why? To, To the praise of his glorious grace. It's about his grace. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he sparingly doles out to us based on our performance. It's not what it says, is it? It says that he does what? What's that word? He lavished, lavished on a Circle that word, lavished. In, in the original Greek, the, the image of that verb means literally to be poured out More than is needed. You know, it's like a back up the dump truck and just dump it all out. Way more than you need. It's like a a steady rain that never stops. And it's way more than you need. It saturates the ground. It creates puddles. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. That is what God's grace is like. No matter how many hours you performed for Him. So let me ask you a question. Why are you picking grapes? Why are you doing the things? Why did you come to church? Why do you give? Why do you serve? Why do you help hurting people in the community? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Are you doing it to perform for the king so he will pour out his grace on you? Or are you doing it because he's poured out? His grace on you, and it's changed your life. Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, your significance, your value, your worth is based on God's grace, not your performance. Number two, the second thing we learn about significance in our lives is that it comes through contentment, not comparison. Significance comes through contentment, not comparison. See, in our search for significance, in our desire to matter with our lives, our most often used measuring tool is comparison. How are we doing compared to the people around us? But Jesus says through this parable, our significance comes from being content with what we have, not comparing ourselves to others. In fact, I believe that's the whole reason when Jesus told the parable he had the workers paid in reverse order. Because think about it. If the 12-hour guys had have been paid first, they'd have got their denarius and they'd have went on their merry way. They'd been full of joy. They'd be like, yeah, a good day's pay for a good day's work. But because they knew that others who worked less than them got paid the same at them, their joy turns to frustration. And that same thing happens to you every time you compare yourself to others. Every time you go on Facebook and look at the picture-perfect lives of people who don't love Jesus as much as you, and you wonder, why I love Jesus and my life is in the tank? Why? Because comparison takes the joy of what you have and burns it up into the ashes of what you don't. That's why Paul says this in Philippians 4.12. He said, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. Paul said, I learned it. Circle that word learned. (laughs) Contentment is not natural. Discontent is what's natural. Discontent is what you will become unless you're intentional about being content, unless you're willing to practice it unless you're willing to look at what other people have around you and say, it doesn't matter, I have been blessed. Contentment has to be learned. You know, when I was a kid, parents and teachers had this saying. I don't think anybody uses it anymore, but there was this saying, when you were worried about somebody else, they would say, you mind your own little red wagon. Anybody ever heard that besides me? Yeah, I remember that. When I would say, well, you know, I'm getting in trouble. and I'm like, what about him? He's worse than me. Mind your little red wagon. How come she got a bigger cupcake? How come he gets a better grade than me? Mind your little red wagon. See, the problem is we take that mindset from our childhood and we carry it right into adulthood. We look around and we say, well, what about them? What about them? And that... Causes us to be discontent. It kind of reminds me of that story, that encounter with Peter and Jesus at the very end of the Gospels when Jesus has been resurrected and he's restoring Peter. From denying him, you know, Peter, do you love me? Yes, does that three times. And then Jesus says to Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to. But when you are old, someone else will dress you and lead you by the hand and take you where you do not want to go. And the Bible says Jesus said that to predict the painful suffering of Peter's death as a martyr. You know what Peter did when Jesus said that? He saw John, the other disciple, and said, what about him? How long is he going to live? And you know what Jesus said? (laughs) If I want him to live to the very end, what is that to you? That Greek phrase, what is that to you, is translated, mind your little red wagon. No, I'm just teasing, but it makes the same truth, right? Mind your little red wagon. You know, at the end of the parable, the landowner asked the 12-hour workers a question, that I think we need to ask ourselves. It's the second part of verse 15. He says, are you envious because I am generous? Are you? Are you envious when God blesses someone else in ways that he's not blessing you? Are you envious when you have to struggle with things and it seems like nobody else has to struggle? Are you jealous and envious when you have to go through hard times and others Don't. If so, and let's be honest, we all are, Jesus would say to us this morning, you mind your own little red wagon. But Jesus doesn't say that maybe in the condescending way that your third grade teacher did. Jesus says this out of love, out of a deep desire for you to experience the significance that comes from knowing your place And knowing your role in the kingdom of God. Listen, your path, your journey with Jesus, the ups and the downs, the blessings and the struggles has been handpicked for you by the one who created you and knows everything you need. And then finally, the third thing we learned about significance in the kingdom is that it comes through generosity, not accumulation. It comes through generosity, not accumulation. Because our tendency is to measure our significance not only by comparing ourselves to others, but to measure our significance through the stuff we have, to the what we earn, the money, the material possessions we have. What's that old saying? He who who dies with the most toys wins. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He who dies with the most toys is still dead. The only difference is their relatives have to haul all that crap off to Goodwill and the dump. That's the only difference. Look at this parable again. What really was it that made the 12-hour workers angry? What were they really mad about? Were they mad about only getting paid one denarius? No. They were mad that what others got paid and how it made them feel about themselves. In fact, they just come right out and say it in verse 12. These are the 12-hour workers talking to the vineyard owner. They say, these who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us. See, it ain't about the money. It's about how the money made them feel. It's about where their value came from, what it represented to them. And when you do that, you lose true significance. See, when you don't get what you think you ought to get from God, it doesn't mean that you're devalued or that he loves others more. No, it means your significance is not tied to your paycheck or your bank account or the toys in your garage. And as, if you can't break that, you're going to lose the joy of what you do have and you're going to lose the joy of what you've gotten to accomplish for the kingdom. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 11, he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can hoard it and feel good about yourself. No, he says, so that you can what? What does he say? Be generous on every occasion. In the kingdom of God, your generosity is what gives you significance. You know why? Because it reflects the heart of the vineyard owner. Because he is generous. And isn't that the ultimate purpose of our lives? To make much of God and less of ourselves? And until you learn to do that, you will always struggle with feeling significance. And generosity is the path to it. So my question is, what does your level of generosity say about where your significance comes from? If there was some measure between 1 and 10, a scale, and you would have to honestly mark your generosity level, what does it say about your significance and where you think it comes from? Because in the kingdom of God, it's not going to be found in the accumulation. It's going to be found in giving it away for the sake of the king. And so as we close this morning, here's the thing I know. All of us, Struggle with significance. We're all struggling to feel like we matter, that our life counts. Some of us struggle with significance because of where we've been and what we've done. Because we weren't just hanging out in the marketplace all day with nothing to do. We were doing what we wanted to do. and We were doing things we shouldn't do. And now we're full of guilt and shame. And we think, I'll never get picked to be in the vineyard. I could never be used for the kingdom. Maybe I'll get in heaven, I don't know, but I'll never be used for the kingdom of God. Some of us are struggling with significance because we've got it all and then some, and no matter how much we accumulate, it's never quite enough. And that emptiness gnaws inside of Whatever has got you struggling with significance this morning, I promise you, Jesus brought you here today to give you a message of hope and a message of freedom. And that is in knowing that your significance is found in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of this world. And as Jesus said, once you understand that kingdom, seek it with everything you've got. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you this morning for truth that just cuts down to the bone. It is like a mirror that I can't look away from. And I know this parable and these truths about significance have shined a harsh light into the brokenness of my life father forgive me for seeking significance in the kingdom of this world and missing the opportunities to be significant in your kingdom not based on my performance Oh, thank you Jesus it's not based on my performance but on your grace So, Father, would you continue to pour out your grace on all of us this morning, at all of our campuses, all of us who are watching online. Would you move us with your grace to be transformed, not to earn it through our performance, but to receive it and be changed forever by it. Father, we are your people. We want to be people of the kingdom. So would you move among us today so that we might seek your kingdom with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.